So what I'm going to talk about today is about a discipline-wide rethinking of what architecture is to its very core. That's happening right now amongst particularly groups of academics across um, Europe, North America, and also, also in the East. And what's interesting in architecture, and probably will help you understand where I'm coming from when I talk about this rethinking today, is to give you a bit of context about what I do specifically. Now, in architecture, as in many jobs, what you tend to call yourself, what your title is, tends to silo you, create expectations for the kind of work that you create, right? So an architect designs buildings, a historian writes about the past, an architecture theorist, however, in my view, touches on both of these spectrums. For me, also, as you'll see throughout my talk today, it's very much a political choice. And importantly, it sparks curiosity. So, what do you do? Is a question I get more often than you'd expect, particularly from my mother, who doesn't understand why I studied architecture, trained to be an architect, and now just talk about architecture. Now, to answer that, it's really useful to talk about what architecture theory has been in the past. Architecture theory has a rather fraught history. It's been criticized for being a very isolated part of the discipline and used only by, by architects for architects, and has been used as a way of defending very subjective decision-making processes in design. Now, theory to me has seemed to be a way of exerting forms of power and influence over the way that the built environment is designed, produced, fabricated, and as a result of that, the way it's inhabited. The primary tasks of an architecture historian are thinking, questioning, discussing, and speculating about architecture. And I believe that architecture theory, therefore, should serve all people and not just be a way for architects to defend their personal subjectivities, biases, and prejudices. After all, we all inhabit architecture. We're inhabiting architecture right now. Whether this is in a royal environment or in a city, we all inhabit architecture in some form or another every day. So what I'm interested in is how our assumptions of what things should be like play out in how we construct our world, how we inhabit that world, how we produce that world. So I'm interested in how to better recalibrate our values and make architectural production practices much more accountable and better aligned for more equitable and inclusive forms of production. So I'm interested in how we can be, use architecture theory as a tool, as a tool to be critical, as a tool to be self-aware, and self-aware of exactly where we need to go and where we are currently. So I align my work, um, as you'll probably see emerge throughout the talk today, with specifically within post-work accelerationism. Now, post-work, in case you aren't aware, is an idea about a, a vision of society that is beyond work. And a lot of the things that I'm talking about is very much aligned within that, and aligns itself also to thinking about things like universal basic income, 
how that would affect our societal structures and our social practices. So this is very much part of everything that I'm talking about. And accelerationism is also kind of embedded within this post-work theory, thinking about how technology can accelerate us towards this post-capitalistic future. Now, what I'm also interested in, and in particular interest in revealing, is how bias in our built environment, whether this bias is a bias about data, a bias within how we construct space, a bias in how we use technology or how technology finds a form, or the ways that we move through and utilize these things, so also in the ways that we use these as tools or parts of our social practice. So being architecture theorist, for me, is a way of being an advocate for a better future, for a post-work accelerationist future. Now I have a young kid there, and when I had him three years ago, almost three years ago, my world shifted dramatically. Anybody that's become a parent will understand that your view of the world changes hugely when you bring another child into the world. And what it has revealed to me very quickly is that my work needs to become much more a form of social justice because the built environment and the land that it sits on, the land that my kid will need to inhabit one day and in the future, has become one of the most politicized assets in the world today. From the Amazonia's fires to London's housing crisis, this is the case. And a short data visualization journey can begin to sort of explore this for us, using London as a context. So you might have seen this, you might not. The, the um, res isn't great, I'm really sorry, I'll zoom in in a minute. Basically, in most societies today, only those who have wealth can afford to buy a home those who have the capital to be able to do that. Now, this image is a great example of how capital affects the ways that our cities are inhabited. This is a map of London from 2018, created by a credit brokerage called, alluringly, Totally Money. It's, <laughs> it's pretty incredible. It shows how much you need to earn in order to purchase a property in London using the tube map to, as places to locate data. Now, when you zoom in, you can see in the area that I live for the better part of 10 years, Hackney, which is in zone two, um, the, and the orange lines pretty much, you need to earn a minimum of around 60,000 pounds a year to 80,000 pounds a year in order to be able to afford to buy a home. Now, my household income that year was 40,000 pounds with a 500 pound a month childcare uh, fee and over $70,000 in American student loan debt. The average income in Hackney is 33,000 pounds a year, and the average house price hovers around 575,000 pounds a year. Effectively, this is a great example, a great personal example, of how ownership of our built environment is not at all accessible to the people who live in it. This exclusivity is hugely disempowering. We know and hear the term all the time, the idea of generation rent. This generation will never own a home. And this is replicated all over the world, from Hong Kong to Sao Paulo to San Francisco, as you can see here. Now, I'm obviously not a politician, but I definitely am an activist. In my work, I like to think about ways to dismantle the power structures within architecture that have contributed to this material hegemony. Something 
something must be inherently failing in the ways that we produce our built environment. I produce work through teaching primarily, um, teaching design and theory, but also through developing projects, speculative projects which are now actually in the process of beginning to be realized projects, in collaborations with teams of specialists from various disciplines, so from architects to designers to technologists, curators, media agencies, material scientists, anthropologists, you name it, if you're interested in the built environment, I'm interested in who you are. Now, um, as Joanna said, I am one of the co-directors of the Design Computation Lab at the Bartlett School of Architecture at UCL. I co-direct this with three others. Um, and what's interesting about the setup of Design Computation Lab is that it's also very much a political choice. In academia, in the UK, particularly in terms of research centers or research labs, there's usually one person, which is the director of that lab. There's four of us. This is a horizontal setup for how we might think about decision-making processes. And we give equity to everyone in the room. And every kind of decision has to evolve out of an agreement with one another. In the lab, we focus on developing primarily experimental design methods to realize the potential of digital and automated technologies and how we can design, fabricate, and assemble the built environment. And I, I'm being quite specific with the term design, fabricate, and assemble, and you'll see why later on. I'm also the director of Automated Architecture, which is a design software and robotic consultancy. And we like to work with really anyone who's interested in as the name suggests, automating architecture, whatever that might mean to you. And I'm also currently a fellow in automation at the Southwest Creative Technology Network, which is funded by Research England, um, where I live. I live in Southwest England in Bristol. So what I hope to show you is how all these experiences that I've had have come to me, have, have shown to me how digital tools and technologies, particularly forms of automation, can play a role in achieving a more equitable environment from the ways that it's produced to the ways that it's inhabited. Now, one of the main questions that drives the work that we do is the following. What if we simplified many of the processes that go into making this kind of building that has thousands of parts? What kind of architecture is the architecture that we need in an age of automation. I call this discrete automation. And I'll show you what I mean later on by the discrete. I don't mean um, politely careful. <laughs> I mean the mathematical version of discrete zeros and ones. But first, let's talk um, a bit about automation. Now, throughout the talk, I'll, I'll show you images of references that I find inspiring or infuriating, <laughs> um, but also design work by my students um, although I'm not really going to go into any detail about them. They're just kind of placeholders for ideas in this talk rather than spending a lot of time going into any detail about them. And they're all online anyway, so you can find them. I'll also be referring to a lot of the ideas in this book, which is coming out in October, um, published by Detail, um, which is called Robotic Building Architecture in the Age of Automation, which I wrote with my three other co um, collaborators at UCL. Now, the automation revolution. The automation revolution of the last 30 years has transformed our social practices from the ways that we connect and communicate to one another, create and disseminate knowledge, and also, importantly, the way that we consume material resources. Digitization has enabled even the farthest reaches of our planet to be connected and be transformed by the devices and platforms that we use to navigate and inhabit it, as well as the algorithms that expand, contract, or even curate 
our worldviews. This is some cor the correspondence from Cambridge Analytica that was revealed, I think, a few days ago, um, finally, by The Guardian um, from Facebook. Yet, when we look at the production of the built environment today, a few contradictions appear to me. While artificial intelligence and machine learning are part of our everyday lives in so many ways, the elements that make up a typical building have not changed much since the Industrial Revolution. They've not really been transformed by this automation revolution. For example, the labor models developed then for architecture still remain incredibly common today. These are models that are heavily reliant on people, on the field, in a building site. They also lean on a very unskilled, quote unquote, transient and precariously employed labor force that's in very short supply today around the world. And they're also subjected often to the three Ds, dull, dangerous, and dirty working conditions. Now, the vast majority of projects that are completed today are delivered using a project delivery method called design, bid, build. I won't pain you <laughs> with a zoom in of this diagram, but as you can see, it's a very highly fragmented method of delivering a project with thousands of people, contractors, consultants, subcontractors, sub-subcontractors, sub-sub-sub-subcontractors involved. As a result, what this requires, it requires a very precise coordination of a very heavily striated workforce. And these workers are managed usually either by the architect who's employed by a client or by the developer of a project who employs architects within their practice. And as you can probably imagine, this kind of framework can create a rather adversarial atmosphere. Cost often rules decisions around quality. And this is a very famous example of the MIT Strata Center designed by Gary Partners, where Frank Gary was sued to the tune of uh, over $10 million for it being completely like not waterproof. <laughs> um, I can't remember what year this is. A, uh, this was started in 2007 and ended in 2010. In addition, in a design bid build model, responsibility, liability, transparency can very much become obstacles to a streamlined and efficient collaboration between stakeholders, causing budgets to skyrocket, timelines to extend, and communication pathways to break down. On this, these are all, on each of these projects, it gets worse as you look down at the bottom. This is how much they went over budget. So, Big dig Boston. I grew up in the Boston area, and for the vast majority of my childhood, big dig was happening, and it went $13 billion over budget and caused um, you know, several significant amount of deaths as well of workers and, and um, people that were just driving through, actually. So something must be wrong here. The typical production chain, even for very small-scale projects like houses, if, has anybody in the room built their own house? Had the privilege to be able to do that? Some people, yeah, cool, great. That makes me really happy. But even for smaller projects, as you'll probably know, they can get very opaque, the processes that you use. They become very long, inefficient, and often extremely costly. This is why, in many ways, there isn't a huge house-building effort happening in the UK. As you can see here, this is from earlier this year, half of the councils are expected to miss their house-building targets. 
in Bristol, where I live, I'm really pleased to be able to say that they surpassed their target last year. There's 10,000 people on a waiting list. They built over 2,000 houses, so nowhere close to where they need to be, but somewhere getting there. Now, the vast majority of these clients who are doing self-build projects don't have the expertise to fully understand the complexity of the processes that we use to realize any kind of work of architecture, and thus are unfortunately really uneducated on the risks that can make the process inflate in terms of time, cost, and other resources. This is also a very recent uh, news item that I thought was ridiculous, um, which is Grand Designs. I don't know if you're familiar with Grand Designs. It's very popular in the UK. Kevin McLeod is sort of like this very famous media figure architect. And this is a house that went over 300,000 pounds on its budget with a starting budget of 60,000 pounds. And this is supposed to be an eco house built with hemp. <laughs> don't know what went wrong there. Now, the asymmetries that emerge from all of these conditions, when extrapolated to a global scale, contribute to the inequity that we can see across the built environment. So, who has access to specialist architectural knowledge? No one. Just how precarious is the gig economy? Extremely so. The data is really clear something is inherently wrong. <coughs> I believe that architecture as a discipline is overwhelmingly complicit in all of these asymmetries. Despite the precarity in the capitalist market that it operates in and a desperate need to address global issues such as the housing crisis, our attention is generally focused in the wrong direction. This need for innovation extends from production practices all the way to what buildings are actually made of. The architectural elements that make up buildings that surround us, the slabs, beams, columns, stairs, also haven't changed much since the 20th century. These elements are often extremely rigid, and the ways that they're combined together tend to generally be within the socio-political the socio practices and traditions and expectations of what architecture should be from a very long time ago. Now, some architects, I'm sure, would argue that this is an absurd statement that I'm making. And I think that they're right, but only when we look at design and the design tools in, in particular that architects use. Certainly, the discipline has moved beyond using the tools that were used in the drawing board factories of the 20th century. The proliferation of digital and parametric software has enabled programming, artificial intelligence, augmented and virtual reality to infiltrate the profession and be able to communicate our work in a different way. And it's had an enormous impact on the way that we design and the forms that we can design. There are very few practices today that don't use tools such as building information modeling, or famously acronized as BIM, and many larger practices have invested in research groups focused on developing code, such as Zaha Code at Zaha Architects, or other specialist automated technology groups. Yet, when my research assistant and I looked into this automated technologies that are de being developed now or just on the market, we saw that on the one hand, there was a very large number of BIM softwares being developed, and on the other hand, there was a very large number of project management or logistics softwares being developed. And the promise of BIM, the promise of 
project management softwares and logistics softwares, is that they have the potential to deal with some of the complexities of a design bid build project, right? They al are, allow us to communicate in a different way. And they're being heavily invested in by venture capital, like the construction startup Procore, which is the very first construction um, startup to achieve unicorn status. Now, these technologies enable stakeholders in a project to contribute to a digital model, adjusting specifications, timelines, synchronizing calendars, and updating data across multiple platforms in real time. This can aid in providing some transparency to a project and in improving the efficiencies in the design process. But it throws up all other kinds of legal issues around copyright and liability, and the legal industry has been very slow to pick up on these, in these inconsistencies and to figure out BIM-supportive contracts. So how did we get here? How did we get here in this mess? This is when I put on my historian hat very briefly. Now, architecture has a very illustrious history of historicizing its own use of digital tools and amplifying that history. The term digital turn, for example, has had widespread adoption since the publishing of my colleague and my PhD supervisor's book, Mar uh, Mario Carpo's book, on the first subject in 2012, which dates the start of the digital turn as 1992. Other historians would argue that that is absurd, <laughs> and actually the digital turn began in the 1950s and 1960s. Now, in the late 1980s and in the early 1990s, design and manufacturing softwares were being adopted by architects from industries like automobile industry, aeronautical, film, and they began to use them to think about form, architectural form, in a different way. And the way that architects engaged with these tools were, were also kind of, um, uh, informed by other disciplines, so art history, biology, chemistry, and philosophy, which is very much evident in some of the work of Greg Lynn from the early 90s, particularly this project, Embryological House. And notions of self-similarity, self-replication, seriality, variability, and difference came through into the practice of architecture through these disciplinary influences. And virtuality allowed this idea of multiple objects that could unfold without changing the code underlying those objects or really changing the baseline relationships between parts of them, but instead changing the distance or the shape of them using spline modeling. This is like a really retro idea now. If you are a designer, you'll probably understand that. Now, something fundamental began to shift with the use of these technologies appropriated from other industries. Digital design tools began to automate the processes that were previously done with analog methods, similar to how factory work, factories were replaced, uh, replaced human workers with industrial robots like Unimate, which was first um, developed in the 1950s. This is the first industrial robotic arm. And the use of animation software, like in this project, the Port Authority Triple, um, Triple Gateway project by Greg Lynn, enabled architecture to be understood as being acted on by a series of changing forces. So, for example, in this project, the behavior of flows of people. And this would affect the form that, was coming, that would come out of all of these forces. It also allowed us to think of architecture as embodying a sense of network relationships, uh, data, and in a continuous state of change, flux, and adaptation. And the term digital architecture became a tool used to describe the work of these architects. 
And in the 1990s, architects began, these digital architects, began to win very large commissions, such as Guggenheim, Bio, Guggenheim Bill Bao by Gary Partners, foreign office architects who won Yokohama Port Terminal competition, or the Mercedes-Benz Museum by the Dutch practice UN Studio. And these kinds of projects, particularly Guggenheim Bilbao, really brought digital architecture to a wide international audience. This pelvic realm was expanded for the very first time. The Guggenheim created what we now call the Bilbao effect, or the idea that an iconic piece of architecture could provide economic uplift to an otherwise underutilized or, under de or deprived area or city or region. Now, what's obvious to me now is that this emphasis on iconic architecture meant that in the 2000s, digital architecture settled into a kind of digital neo-formalism, privileging things that were subjective, symbolic, aesthetic, effective, and representational. While the digital tools that people were using in parametric softwares allowed multiple inputs from the environmental to the spatial to the structural to the contextual to be coded into form, this digital approach was extended to construction. You can see here, this is Zaha Architects Hadar, um, Hadar Center, uh, where you can see a very, sim very like, straightforward 20th century uh, building wrapped in a really complex um, exterior. And as a result of this, there's a discontinuity that kind of emerged between the ways that architects designed with digital tools and the ways that those designs were realized. These curvy, complex architectural forms needed to be post-rationalized in order to be constructed using the available techniques, tools that hadn't really changed since the Industrial Revolution and were the available technologies in construction at the time. Now, post-rationalization effectively became about maintaining an efficiency of resources that were available in relation to the exuberance of architectural form. These complex, curvy forms uh, were and the problems that they highlighted was described really brilliantly by the MIT assistant professor, Skylar Tibbetts, when he said the following. Architects have collectively pushed the boundaries of mass-customized complexities, producing thousands of unique components requiring thousands of connections that demand hours, days, months, or even years of manual assembly. The energy input and man hours necessary to build these structures, however, has generally been overlooked. They have been ce celebrated with impressive simulations, beautifully nested cut sheets, videos of CNC machines running 24-7, and stunning photographs hiding the assembly problem. As a result, there was a discontinuity between the way that architects design and the way these things are realized. So really low in this hierarchy was critical discourse about the very elements that make up architecture, the bones of architecture, what they were made of, what their geometry or tectonic system was, how they should be made, and what their relationship with the environment or the context should be in terms of the resources being used. And such a reduction of architecture to the ideologies of icon-infused capital means that what was now interna internationally recognized as digital architecture became reliant on its performance, its performance as an instrument of capital. And BIM, I would argue, contributed to this. When used for project delivery, it's more or less an asset management system, and it reduces architectural practice to capital. 
So despite the rapid digitization in almost all other industries, which we'll see in a second, the built environment remains one of the least affected. This is really obvious when you look at construction's production levels. This is only from 1994, but if you look at the um, production levels over the 20th, last, later half of the 20th century, what you'll see is that the value added per worker has remained stagnant since the wor Second World War. It's even more obvious when we look at the McKinsey Institute's Global Industry Digitization Index, where construction is second to last, tied, really, with agriculture, if you consider Western agriculture, which is highly automated, and only above hunting. So construction is more or less as digitized as the industry of hunting. And today, resources are beginning only now to be dedicated towards advancing automation and construction at a large scale. But there's a problem, I would say, with this too. Real innovation in architecture and construction re requires a very critical rereading of architectural culture. And Nick Cernick explains this really well in his book, Platform Capitalism, when he writes that phenomena that appear to be radical novelties in historical light reveal themselves to be simple continuities. And in my work, what I'm trying to do all the time is to acknowledge and become aware of what are those tools, technologies, and practices that are simple continuities in real time, not in historical light. And this is very important because investment in the built environment today is coming more from tech and real estate corporations rather than the state. Co-living companies have become London's biggest office occupier and leaseholder. Other platforms in their process are becoming property developers. And as TF Tierney has written, Google Sidewalk Labs in Toronto signaled a shift from the citizen as citizen to the citizen as a consumer. And it's clear to me, without urgently providing innovative alternative solutions, collectively we're taking great risks. Now, movement towards automation of labor and architectural design and construction tends to be approached in a kind of revivalist Taylorism. And what I mean by this is that human labor is often replaced by single task forms of automation. And by automation, just to be clear, I mean robots. A great example of this and of Cernic's simple continuities is the bricklaying robot SAM by Construction Robotics, which was launched in 2016. And here you see the construction robot, Sam the construction bricklaying robot, laying bricks. And behind him, you see the trail of the uh, manual laborer who's now been reduced to someone who just swipes away extra mortar. And this is really no different from visions of the future about robotic technology from the early 1900s like this postcard from Villamard's series, the year 2000 from 1910, where you have single-task robots doing the jobs of what would have been laborers. And I find it incredibly odd that our world has changed, yet our vision for the built environment and its production hasn't. There is such a risk-averse climate in architectural production that this risk-aversity almost entirely subsumes innovation that thinks beyond what I call labor replacers like um, that one. These technologies, oh, it should play. That's not playing. 
there we go, good. This is an autonomous construction vehicle um, by Built Robotics. This is a girl watching the autonomous construction vehicle, having her lunch with her dad. And anyways, these technologies, I think, are incredibly seductive, and they're incredibly good at, be at distracting us from what we should be caring about. They distract us from much wider issues, like how all this infinite variability and curvilinear form distracted architects from the fact that realizing those forms was virtually impossible without extremely expensive, custom, one-off processes that had very long production chains. And when we've tried to create shorter production chains using automation, Companies often fall into tropes which have existed for much of the 20th century. Prefabricated, mass-produced, factory-made building elements assembled together into standardized housing buildings have existed since the post-war era of Levittown in the US. You can't really see much difference between this construction startup based in California called Katera and this. It's almost exactly the same kind of project. It's also almost the exact same kind of project as the very famous Soviet concrete panel for housing blocks. Now, more contemporary visions, such as the Fab Lab model, utilizes decentralized modes of production, yet it often realizes, um, gets realized also in very one-off, custom, non-scalable kinds of projects. In the political sphere, also, digital architecture has libertarian politics as its most public representation, from the indifferent use of slave labor to the demolition of social housing, both perpetuated by Zaha Hadid on one hand and her right-hand man, Patrick Schumacher, on the other. This is, as you can probably imagine by now, antithetical to myself and to many of my colleagues. Many of us were brought up in a generation of digital literacy, but also in the, era, in the era of the Anthropocene, where we understood that we're part of a much greater ecology of both nature and artifice. So instead of falling stray to the more homogenous, striated, segregated, and inequitable world that all of these kinds of processes produce and promote, I believe architecture should be working towards forms of processes of digital and automated technologies that can facilitate and promote practices of equity and heterogeneity. So here is where the discrete comes in. This is an image, this is a real video, not a fake video. This is a real video of um, the Ocado warehouse in Hampshire, fully automated Ocado warehouse. Um, and I think it's a really fascinating example. Um, it unfortunately burned down recently. <laughs> So something, we're lucky actually that people weren't in there. Um, the lights were only turned on for the video as well. It's a dark factory. This is an image from 1940. Uh, to explain the discrete, I have to go a little bit back in time. This is an image that you've already seen before. Um, or no, I actually haven't shown you before. This is an image from 1914 of Maison Domino by the very famous French-Swiss architect Le Cabousier. Now, this project really transformed the production of the built environment, particularly in the post-war environment. Today, it's the most common typology for a building, especially in housing. It was mass standardized, 
and mass-produced at multiple scales, from the single-family home, as you can see here, to the housing block. And in this way, it was an incredibly agile typology for its time, able to be used in post-war reconstruction across Europe, and also was replicated around the world. I'd put money on this being a very recognizable typology to many of you. This is a project in Stockholm. It is, I would argue, though, incredibly insufficient as a typology today. Family structures and work patterns have changed. Our environment is changing rapidly. And what we need is we need architecture that can respond to those changing social practices, that can be rethought in new ways to be able to be flexible to our changing needs more quickly. Time is really of the essence in the built environment. This typology is also incredibly resource intensive in terms of materials and energy. Now, a study of Chinese residential buildings showed that using concrete for this typology emits over 45% of all carbon emissions for building materials and consumes over 35% of, of energy of all building materials. So we need to rethink what a more uh, resource, less resource-intensive architecture might be like. Buildings really need to be much more flexible and agile to accommodate for changing needs or requirements over time. They need to be more resilient, have longer life cycles, and at the same time have a much smaller carbon footprint. And the technologies of digital mass customization make it so that we no longer have to think of space as being constructed as fixed elements or objects. The possibility exists for end users' needs to be embedded more into the way that spaces are produced, shaped, used, and this goes far beyond what was previously offered by commercial techniques of customization or, or personalization, which oftentimes results in this kind of product that focuses primarily on aesthetics or how things look rather than how things function. And with discrete thinking, I would argue that we can move away from top-down post-rationalist thinking of the earlier generation of digital architecture and by abstracting architectural elements that we design away from the traditions of the 20th century. Instead, we can think of architecture as being much more bottom-up through part-to-whole relationships rather than top-down, whole-to-part relationships. And I'll explain what I mean in a second. Now, there's a very rapidly growing group of, uh, of us <laughs> architects, including myself, that believe that digital architecture that is to come is one that is discrete. And the reason why we assign digital and discrete together is we believe that architecture has really never been digital. But in this model, in a discrete model, we can take an architecture that was digital, which is the second line, and actually really think of architecture as being comprised as digital data, or zeros and ones. This is a diagram um, by my colleague, Jill Rutzen. Discrete architecture emphasizes part-to-whole relationships, and it uses fewer building elements that then allow for a large number of possible outcomes. And this is where my student work comes in. This, what we argue, enables architecture to be much more open-ended, scalable, and versatile. And it becomes a framework for design that can have specificity embedded into it through the way that it's used, the way that it's produced, rather than through an aesthetic. Discreteness has emerged very specifically from research in, uh, on digital materials. And this is the kind of history that I use um, to talk about the discrete, but there's others as well that look at um, something called muriology, which is a, the study of part-to-whole relationships in philosophy and mathematics. 
But digital materials is something that emerged out of work at places like the Center for Bits and Atoms at MIT. And a really easy and clear way, I think, to describe digital materials is it having properties very similar to Lego. The work of the researchers at CBA have defined digital materials as, quote, a discrete set of parts, reversibly joined in a discrete set of relations, orientations, and positions. And these attributes allow for architectures to be disassembled and reused rather than just disposed. Discreteness allows for a set of building art elements to be contextualized, assembled, and decontextualized, disassembled, and recontextualized, assembled in multiple different ways. Here, this is an example of a project that one of my students, Ivo Tedbury, did in 2017, where he designed a single building element. This is very early days of the discrete. Um, single bu building element that could do everything that Mason Domino did, but for much less material resource intensive production. So the idea of the discrete is that a, a set of building elements of self-similar building elements can be used for different functions and scenarios according to different needs. And here, I think we can see that a single part that's made of a more sustainable material can be combined in a number of ways to create all kinds of building elements. And this understanding of architecture is a result of this, a crisis of objectivity. That is this, a term that my colleague Daniel Kohler has, has um, used to describe it. And it's also a, really a crisis of architectural syntax. What we've realized is that the language that we use to design with in architecture is insufficient today in relationship to the socio-political environment. So digital architecture ultimately really requires a new ontology of built space, one that allows for a different and less biased understanding of the ecology and relationships between things. The relationships between individuals, society, and nature should not require or be enforced or determine hierarchies between parts but instead these should emerge over time through the idea of accumulation, seriality, and recombination. And the prototypical and generic, slightly generic nature of discrete set of tectonic building elements enables heterogeneity, enables the heterogeneity of contemporary life to impact and inform the, the realization of architecture. In this project, my student Osama designed a discrete kit of lightweight molds out of EPS foam that are used to assist in a quick initial deployment on sites that are often unused or underdeveloped, such as sites that are being banked by land developers. End users in this scenario could attach their components onto one another, enabling this kind of renegotiation of living space over time by rotating the pieces in a discrete set of ways. And then casting the molds adds a degree of permanence, but more importantly, really requires a consideration of how the building will be used over time, how it might be adapted, how it might need to be expanded, or how it might evolve in terms of the whole building. And what we've found in a discrete approach, this dichotomy that I was talking about between the way things are designed in the virtual world and the way things are realized in the physical world becomes much smaller. It's not so long anymore and distanced. The methods and processes of design, fabrication, and assembly can become much more streamlined as a very precise virtual environment can replicate the exact imprecise physical environment in real time and adapt to its changing, time, changing needs as well. 
And the role of the architect really becomes much more concerned with the framework for production rather than form or the final form that a building might take or might not take. Instead, in this framework, we're able to engage with this overarching economic, social, material, and technical framework in which architecture is produced. So we're really shifting here from a prosumer model, uh, from a consumer model, not that way around, a consumer model to a prosumer model for all stakeholders in a project, and not just the architect, not just the developer. Now, this is not essentially a new idea. Discreteness it has been around in many ways for a long time. There were experiments in the mid-20th century with people such as Jean Prouvet, with the Maison Tropicale, which on reflection was a very colonialist project, or Walter Siegel's method for self-built housing, uh, primarily in London. And there's many others that have been um, involved in this kind of project of thinking about te uh, tectonic relationships between parts. But when we combine this thinking with more contemporary ideas from open source, activism, and software, and more participatory modes of production, there's then the potential for engagement by end users, giving them agency, and giving them agency in how they participate in architectural production over time. This is a great example of a project by my colleague Jose Sanchez, based at USC, called Bloom, which was built for the London Olympics with Alyssa Andersek, where there was a single set of building elements that essentially could be played with by the public. So the public had the ability to assemble, deassemble, fight, argue, celebrate their, their building outcomes. And this, for Jose, has really spurred a whole body of work over the last um, eight years. So let's now bring discrete and automation together. What I believe is that automation provides a ground in which discreteness can address architectural innovation in construction, also address the issue of stagnancy in architectural practice, and also allow us to design more effective models for public engagement in the processes of realization. Automation provides a ground where we can critique things like the Fab Lab, Oh, that should be playing. There, there we go. So unlike Fab Labs or the maker labs or maker communities or maker venues that are very common around the world today, what automation allows us to do is think on a more radical, large-scale and horizontal rethinking of what the built environment is made of, how it is made, through a framework that takes just as its starting point questions of scalability, and logistics, cross-scale and across communities. The notion of folk politics, or a politics that, quote, aims to bring politics down to the human scale by emphasizing temporal, spatial, and conceptual immediacy, as defined by Nick Cernick and Alex Williams, becomes really useful here. And I really hesitate, though, um, and an example of this is the Occupy movement. I really hesitate, though, to equate current forms of direct action um, regarding the climate in the same way. Extinction Rebellion and the school strike for climate feel so far like they have the potential to be something else in their broad mobilization of all people's awareness towards radical and urgent climate cha uh, change in, in regards to the climate. So in this model, XR and school strike for climate are not folk politics. Now, automation works in the opposite direction of folk politics. It works at moving our attention out 
and up from the local, rather than pulling our attention in and down to the local and temporal or individual. And as a tech writer has written, folk political models like the Fab Lab really suppress the development of large-scale infrastructure by localizing production without considering how to enable the knowledge transfer of activities across the network. Folk politics amplifies the idea of the individual, the subjective, and the personal experience of an individual over systemic change, much like how I critiqued older practices of architectural theory at the start of my talk. Automation, I believe, can really differ from these models in its abil ability to engage with wide audiences and deal with complex logistics, which is very important. Now, of course, we see automation today in the hands mainly of private corporations. But what if this was to change? What if we were to imagine an architecture for automation? In the work we're doing in DCL and, and OUR, the, the acronym for air, um, automated architecture, we attempt to bridge this automation gap in between how we live and how we produce the built environment. The research that we do combines the generic and open-endedness of the discrete with the scalability and accessibility of automation to, to, to allow us to really speculate on how to catalyze labor's obsolescence or new forms and frameworks for labor that are aligned to other types of society, like a post-work society. And we have, alongside our students, developed multi-scale robotic production chains for automating design and assembly of buildings that are both socially engaged and disruptive. And in our projects, which we are mainly designing currently through development of live platform-based architectural systems, the end users that we work to serve have a direct role in the way that their built environment is. To this end, we have developed novel fabrication and assembly methods using industrial and modular robots, as well as platforms for logistical coordination between architectural elements on a large scale. And the emphasis on these projects is on the qualitative and the emergent, qual emergent qualities of architectural production over the, over the quantitative and fixed, fixed top-down. So this brings for me the questions of why and for who that were not answered by earlier generations of digital architects to the forefront of our architectural project. Sometimes our answers are slightly satirical, and images are made to a certain aesthetic, but purposely so, as satire, after all, is a form of cultural critique, and we care about design. The feminist collective Laboria Kabonics has written that there is a need to strategically deploy existing technologies to re-engineer the world. My work points to the argument that this is not at all an impossible challenge. It's not a free-floating pro project. We have the frameworks to do this. They exist and they have traction in the world. But technology must be contextualized in relationship to how it can and has been appropriated by the powerful, working against a system that would benefit the many for the sake of growth, endless growth, and capital. In its emancipatory potential, discrete architecture understands that those who are in a state of disempowerment cannot prevail over the strong without the strategic coordination of automation. Discrete architecture, I believe, aims to take the first step in using automation to, con to, to confront the biases and privileges that are inherited by and inherent to the disciplines of the built environment, from the data we use to how we use it. 
And I hope that you can see now there is great social, economic, and political consequences to how we produce architecture. And some of the assumptions that are inherent to the current discourse on socioeconomic and technological progress might need to be overturned in order to re-articulate the power of relations sustained by our cities. This is, in many ways, a call for us to all pay closer attention to how we live, to how we engage with our built environment, to how it disciplines our relationships with it. Architecture is important for all of us. We all should have more of a say in how it's designed, manufactured, and how we live in it. Discrete automation, I hope, can provide a role in getting us there. Thank you. Thank you very much.